Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nubla Isla Zoological Society. Check out our generous animal likeness licensing program, free licenses to all bite victims. And welcome back, everybody, to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the caption of the Enterprise. Uh, I welcome to all of our new listeners. We had a fantastic uh, Facebook campaign over the last couple of weeks, and we got a ton of new people. So yep, Sounds like a bunch of you are listening to us for the first time. Obviously, go back and listen to the old catalog. Yes, you will um, enjoy it. There's great stuff in there. Um, some great dated stuff, too, that you can probably make fun of what we say, like our episode <laughs> 8 predictions and stuff like that. Yeah, those were, those were terrible. Uh, <laughs> on that note, we're recording this right before the Han Solo movie is publicly available, so we'll probably go through our Han Solo uh, predictions from our last episode. Um, I don't know, two or three more episodes. We'll give it some time to marinate. Yeah, and make sure you guys we'll all see it. it. Uh, but Kirk did see Deadpool too. I have not yet, so I think at the end of this episode, Kirk's going to give uh, his thoughts on that. Yep. So there may be some few spoilers. I'll try to avoid it and just focus generally on the movie, but we'll talk about it a bit. Well, we've spent most of this spring in copyright land, and uh, um, if you guys aren't sick of it, we are. We're going to talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. it's, we've definitely, in the last few episodes, we did sort of the big multi-part episode talking about you know character copyright and a lot of issues with that. We've definitely been very strongly in copyright. Part of that's just because when we talk about things in geek culture, we tend to bump into copyright a lot. It's the most pervasive. Yeah. What we really wanted to purposely do, and I think you're going to see this with this episode and, and probably our next episode as well, we're going to purposely try to get away from copyright. Yeah, although it's going to keep creeping in, but we'll try not to let it. Yep. So today we're going to go into, uh, what, you know, our, our normal format is to sort of start with a particular um, IP issue or, or topic and then discuss all the different kinds of IP, um, I don't know, I guess IP issues that come up with that topic. So like we talk about cosplay or languages and go into trademark issues, copyright issues, etc. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to pick uh, the IP issue itself and then talk about the fun things that happen with it. So <laughs> today we're going to do uh, trademarks. It's kind of go over um, a couple of, of we have one particular example case we're going to talk about called Characters for Hire um, and I'll get into that in a second but we're going to talk about just basically what a trademark is and then some of the shenanigans that come up when uh, when you try to apply these concepts you know, off the pages of the law books and into the real world. Yeah, and I think the, the real thing about this is we, we've also heard from comments from listeners and stuff like that that, that surprisingly you guys seem to be a little bit more into the law um, in these things than a little less into the geek portion of it. Yeah, we've been operating on the assumption that nobody really cares about the law. <laughs> they just like the drama of, of all these conflicts and court cases, but a lot of people have said they actually find the, the legal issues pretty fascinating. So we're going to get into a few, I think sort of, and I think the good way to describe it is we're going to get into some interesting legal issues in conjunction with trademark, not necessarily related to any particular topic, other than the fact that they are just a little different and a little interesting. Well, this is where disputes arise in the law, is where you you have these rules that are written down, and this is just like like playing a board game. You write the rules, but then situations come up that the people who wrote the rules did not anticipate, and then it's sort of an open question as to how those rules, uh, one, how they do apply, and is that the same way as how they should apply? And there's a real thing that comes into this, is that you bump into then the issue of judge's discretion. Yeah. Um, and one of the things to keep in mind, it's a very important sort of component of law, actually, is there is an element of judge's discretion and a sort of fact finder ability. There's a recognition in the law that when a case is first brought at a district court level or at a state court level, um, that there's things that are unknown. Mm-hmm. And one of the keys, we always hear about appeal and cases being appealed and what's going to happen on appeal. 
the appeal basically says that everything factual is correct at the lower level. Yeah. We're only examining legal issues. So when we're talking about the idea of, you know, what are we what are we doing with these sort of interesting legal questions and stuff like that, we're pointing out that, you know, when you're talking about most of these cases, we're not talking about is there a fact question, like what actually happened here. You're usually talking about what does this fact really mean when it comes to what the law is because the law, as all laws are, is written in a language. Mm-hmm. The language has vagaries of it and there's quite frankly just scenarios people who write it don't think about. And that's where, you know, judges and juries kind of come in. The, the, you know, the jury's job is to say what what happened. What what were the facts? That's what the jury does. The judge doesn't do that unless, the unless it's a, a bench trial. Yeah, there yeah. is no jury. And then the, the judge's job is to say what the law is. And whenever I, when people ask about this, um, the example I give is, is classic burglary statutes. It used to be that burglary was, uh, you know, or breaking and entering was the unlawful entrance into a dwelling at night. Yeah. Well, okay. What does that mean if the sun is down, but it's you know it's still light out? You know, it's seven o'clock. Say, um, it's it's not nighttime yet, but it certainly isn't day. Is that a burglary or not? What do you do? And the judge may say, you know what, we're going to consider night to be sundown. Okay, well, when is sundown? It depends on how high up I am elevation-wise. So it may be a burglary on this street, but the you know one one door down where they're you know twenty feet higher. Let's say I'm in you know San Francisco has crazy elevation changes. Well, then it's not, and and that just seems unfair. So you know those kind of components get taken out, but then. What's a dwelling? If someone breaks into my garage, is yep. that burglary? Nobody lives in my garage. But what if somebody does live in my garage or my tool shed yep. or something? And it's actually a well-known case related to burglary about when somebody literally stole something from a cardboard box that the person was living in. Yeah. Does that qualify is as that a, dwelling? a dwelling? Yeah. So the judge's job is to, is to say, as a matter of law, what does the word dwelling mean? That's not for the jury to decide. Uh, that's for the judge to decide. And, and they get into that by looking at you know what the legislature meant, what's the purpose of the law. And we have this app- appellate doctrine called uh, stare decisis, decisis. how you pronounce it? Yeah. Uh, which basically says once something's been decided, we're going to keep deciding things the same way. So once, you know, once Judge A says, well, dwelling does not include a garage, then Judge B is not supposed to come along and say, yes, it does. Because the rules are supposed to be consistent from person to person. Yeah, and that's and, and that's a lot of times when people, you hear things, Cosmo, where somebody will look at and say, that's a bad decision. Why wasn't it overturned on appeal? And a lot of times the answer to it is, is because the the decision really rests on, on a, a question which is a factual question, not mm-hmm. a legal question. So the example would be as well, a judge decides what a dwelling is and says this is the definition of dwelling, it may be up to the jury to decide was the person actually living in it. So yeah. if the requirement for dwelling for us, they have to live in it. The question is, were you actually living in it? So that's where you can look at it and say, are they actually living in the garage? Is there a minimum amount of time? You know, And, and the, the two things are intertwined, and it's important to keep in mind these two things are very fundamentally intertwined with each other. Well, it's the same. Facts bad facts make bad law. When you have a case that has weird facts that aren't particularly strong, those bad facts can motivate you know, legal outcomes that just seem unfair. And so when, when cases get taken up to the Supreme Court, you know, the people who are interested in pursuing these are looking for really good fact yeah. patterns. And a great example of that was the Second Amendment case that came down a couple years ago. Heller, I think it was. They waited until they had great facts where it was like a police officer who had a firearm in his home to where nobody's going to say, well, this guy's just a, a, a jerk who wants to have his guns or some, you know, some crazy gun nut. No, it's a cop. Somebody we, you know, generally trust to know how to use a firearm correctly. And expect to have one. And I would expect to have one. And so you, you want a plaintiff that, that's compelling. I think, um, what was the old case involving segregation on trains? Plessy? 
Uh, Does that sound right? Your, yeah, like a late nineteenth century. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, like a lot of these cases are sort of planned out in advance, where they, you know, they tell the cops we're going to put, you know, uh, uh, a black person in the white car so that that person can be arrested, so that we can have a controversy, and we have manufactured good facts. It's a nanny; she's traveling with the kids. Uh, you know, the kids are allowed to go with the mom, but the nanny's not. So you you want to have good facts uh, when you're taking these cases to higher courts, and a lot of the Supreme Court cases you see are sort of engineered controversy. Yeah. To, to present these issues. And, and the real idea, and, and keep in mind, like, a lot of people may be thinking about this going, wait a minute, isn't that unethical or isn't that inappropriate? And the answer is no. What it's they're really dealing not. with is they're dealing with the fact that bad facts can influence the, the legal questions yeah. in ways we don't want them to. What they're looking at is saying, let's take facts that we all can agree on. There's no question that these are the facts. And we look at it and say, the sole question here is, given this scenario, mm-hmm. what should the law be? It makes it harder for a judge to say, this is how the law should come out and should come out in a way that we don't like. It makes it harder to say that when the facts really make that outcome seem extremely unjust. Yeah. And here's an example. If anybody watches legal dramas on TV, one of the things you bump into is that they actually engineer cases purposely with bad facts. Mm-hmm. To, to point out the problems in the legal elements of it, where you know you have the case where it's, you know, the the law is very clear that this person is supposed to be punished, mm-hmm. but all the facts and all the extenuating circumstances and what you know from watching the drama says they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And that's what creates the tension, you know, sort of underneath it is, is the judge going to go this way? Is it going to go that way? So you have kind of the opposite. I think what a lot of people are familiar with when you watch these things on TV is they're familiar with bad fact cases. Yep. What we really have here is bad law cases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you see that too with like, uh, what was the... Was it Massachusetts versus EPA? Was like the carbon emissions regulation case? Like, does the Supreme or does uh, does the EPA have the authority to regulate carbon emissions? Well, it was it was a four four case with the, the you know the the right wing of the court saying no it doesn't, the left wing saying yes it does, and who's in the middle? Justice Kennedy. Yeah. Where's he from? Massachusetts. <laughs> it's not an accident that the plaintiffs brought the case from Massachusetts to advocate for their interests because they wanted to swing Kennedy to their side. So yeah. nothing wrong with doing that. You know, you, you're, the plaintiffs are allowed to to to, to pick the forum. They're allowed to, to to pick their theories of recovery, and, and you can do that. That's just part yeah. of the system. It's, just, it's still got to be real. I mean, they still got to have the actual case. They got to yeah. something as to what it is. It's just in a lot of these cases, what you were talking about, and we're saying where it's manufactured, it's not even necessarily manufactured. It's specifically chosen. Yeah. You know, you may have 50 cases, one of which is particularly yeah. selected as the best one for doing this. And any state could have sued the EPA for that, but yeah. they chose Massachusetts to give them the best chance of winning, which anybody would. We're going to dig into some of this stuff with trademarks, and for those of you who are new, we'll give you a, a quick refresher on what trademarks are, and for those of you who aren't new, it never hurts to, to hear it again. It's been like, you know, six weeks. Yeah. Uh, well, trademarks are basically a very specific form of unfair competition, which is an old common law uh, a tort, basically, I guess, saying yeah. that, that someone is, is competing with you in business, but in a way that's not, that should not be legally just sanctioned. inherently fa- unfair. We, yeah. just, we look at it and go, no, you shouldn't be allowed to do this. The, the classic example was an early 20th century case involving uh, foreign news correspondents who would wire their stories back to like, I don't know, the New York Times specifically, but a paper like that to publish, well, then other local papers would pick up the stories and rewrite them and republish them in their own language. Since under copyright, the facts themselves aren't copyrighted, you can do that. And the, these secondary newspapers who weren't having to pay the overhead of having foreign correspondents, you know, be there and report on battles and things like that, you know, th- they were sued because they were, they were able to sell papers more cheaply because they weren't having to do the work to gather the facts in the first place. Yep. Although we so, did just bump into copyright again. Yeah, of course, of course. So the uh, the, the trademark rules arise out of an, an old practice of actually marking things with a physical brand 
And the think point of branding, branding yeah, cattle. Branding, yeah, the, the brand. That's where branding comes from. Uh, it's, it was to help designate who made the thing and, and give potential buyers information about you know, where it came from and by extension what the quality was. And this in turn gave rise to something we call passing off, which is where uh, somebody who uh, is not the person who, uh, who makes the high quality stuff, makes cheap low quality stuff, puts the high quality brand on it, and then tricks consumers into buying their thing. Yeah, the real key thing I think to keep in mind about branding here is that branding identifies the seller. Yeah. And, and a lot of people look at it and they say branding identifies the product, and it's not really accurate. Branding no. really identifies the seller um, of the product. So when you go out and you were to buy you know, Coca-Cola, you know who manufactured that product. Yep. Now, you also know what product it is yeah. because Coca-Cola uses that People mark. say, I want a Coke. What yeah. they mean is, I want a Coca-Cola brand carbonated beverage. Yeah, and, and that's essentially what it is. And by saying it's a brand you're associated with, I want it made by that company. And obviously, that's a company, as most large companies with, with well-known trademarks are, that p- space places particular amounts of emphasis on making sure that product is extremely consistent, um, it, it meets exacting requir- yeah. you know, quality standards for what they want it to be, so that you know that if I picked up a bottle you know, in the United States and I picked up a bottle in Mexico, they're probably very similar. Yeah, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a high quality, just a consistent quality. It's a consistent quality. You know, when I go to McDonald's, I want a specific kind of hamburger, and it's not necessarily the greatest hamburger yes, on earth, very true. but it's the one I want. Yeah, and that's and actually McDonald's is a great example of very consistent quality. You know, yeah. McDonald's gives an extremely consistent quality, extremely consistent experience. That's where the value comes from. Yeah. Whether you like McDonald's or not, if you go to one, you know what to expect. Yeah. You can tell exactly what it is. Same way as it's, you know, what you're going to get at McDonald's in Moscow and what you're going to get at McDonald's in New York City are very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they'll have regional variations. Yeah, there's regional yeah. variation, but... Yeah, so trademark rights are kind of... Uh, I don't know, I think of copyright as more as the redheaded stepchild of, of IP law, but it's sort of in a different sense trademark in that copyrights and patents are covered by the Constitution and provided by it. Trademarks really aren't. Yep. Uh, it's just sort of a mishmash of, of state laws that uh, Congress finally uh, coagulated into one federal regulatory scheme as part of the, I don't know if it was really New Deal legislation, but it was it was it came out in that era, like yep. 1930s era legislation, that basically provides a national registration system for, for, for trademarks. So when someone says, I have a federal trademark, what they really mean is, I have a state trademark that's been registered with the federal government, and then you get nationwide priority. Yeah, and, and again, what you're really talking about with this is it's, I think some of the way you also have with it is you're starting to get at this point in time a more national sales force. Yeah. You know, products are no longer with the sold internet, within I mean, a state. Yeah, the concept, because trademarks were originally geographic. You get trademark rights in your region, which is why there's a Smitty's Tavern in every small town in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and, and I joke about it because it's there's certain things, and restaurants being a good example, I always joke about dog groomers as being the other one. Um, those are places where there's you're going to find ones under similar trademarks in multiple states. Very yeah. commonly. They all and, have regional rights, basically. Yeah, they all have regional rights. And part of the reason for that is just because of the fact that there's a lot of commonality across it. I mean, there's a lot of restaurants with similar names in different mm-hmm. cities. But the reason it works is because we all know which one you're referring to when you're in the city. I've yet to live in a city that did not have a Green China or Happy China or or, <laughs> yeah. or some sort of Chinese restaurant with a name like that. Yeah, and that's and I think that you got a lot of those type of things. So again, what we really see with the Lanham Act, and the Lanham Act really codified the federal trademark law. Yeah. Then what you had also is after the Lanham Act, a lot of states basically saying we're just going to follow the federal law. So yeah. they basically you know adapted their law to basically be the federal law, which means we have a, a relatively uniform trademark law now. For all practical purposes. Yeah, with a few very notable exceptions. There are a number of states that have their own trademark laws, many of which have trademark laws because they are so old, mm-hmm. many of which have also just said they wish to have stronger trademark laws. And again, this is not a constitutional right, like patent and copyright, so we definitely have an issue that states can do this. They can provide different rights. 
Yeah, and uh, and the trademark rules present weird issues because it's sort of strange, right? We have a public policy reason for having these laws, which is nominally consumer protection. We don't want people to be tricked or misled. Yep. The problem is, how do you get consumers to enforce these things? Then you know you have the class action vehicle, but for the most part, you know you, you get you get tricked into buying the wrong thing, you demand your money back, or you just kind of take your lumps and move on. But it's it's harder to motivate people to really aggressively enforce these rights, and and by the time you you enforce them, the damage is done. So the sort of the way we enforce trademark rights is we give these rights to the companies rather than the consumers and trust the companies to be, you know, to have a motivation to police their rights and to enforce their rights and to prevent other people from trading off of them. Yeah. I think this mostly works. And, you know, we're getting into our first bit of weirdness here, and I think this is worth pointing out as being a bit of weirdness. We've talked about it again. The purpose of a trademark is to identify the seller. Mm-hmm. Then we give the right to enforce that identification to the seller. You know, so it's kind, of, it's kind of like saying, hey, you have a right to basically say somebody else can't use your name. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you presumably already don't want somebody doing that, we're just going to give you a right to sort of do it. But it's not enforced by the person who's actually influenced by it, yeah. which is the end consumer. Now, obviously, if you are the seller and you have somebody stealing your customer or stuff like that, you, it Im- impacts you, and that's what mm-hmm. the recognition has been. But, but in theory, really the, damage the damage is to, is the, the, yeah, is to yeah. the buyer, the end consumers. Yeah, the damage is to the end consumer, but we're allowing the, the trademark holder to both bring the cause of action and to collect from it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the collection, I think we'll get into that in a little bit, is, is part of the, the detrimental effect. I mm-hmm. mean, because otherwise there's no way to find all the consumers who would have been affected. There, there's a couple other things that are weird about trademarks. Uh, one is that by their nature, you know, anything can be a trademark if it's capable of uniquely identifying a source yes. or origin. So things that you can't otherwise protect in IP can become trademarked. It's not always easy, but they can be. Yeah, and, and trademarks, people think of trademarks, they tend to think of words. Yeah. And even words within the way they're used in the trademark office and under federal registration, you may actually have multiple trademarks in a single word. People mm-hmm. look at that and kind of go, wait a minute, how can I have, you know, how can a single word have multiple trademarks? And the answer is because, you know, there's words being the collection of letters. I sort of jokingly refer to it as the ASCII code mm-hmm. for the word. Um, there's also words which have become in a particular font or style where you may not copy the ASCII code, but you may copy that font or style. It's still technically copying the word or copying a similar word or something along those lines. So there's a lot of interplay between trademarks being words, trademark being designs, which is the other thing that people tend to think of. There's also other things you can trademark. You can trademark colors, yeah. particular colors. Uh, John Deere Green yep. is trademarked. If, I, if you ask anybody on the street, what color is home insulation, what do they say? Pink. Pink. Why is it pink? Yeah, and it doesn't have it's to be pink. It's, own, it's owns corning's, it's corning's trademark. trademark. You can buy gray insulation, but nobody wants it because it looks dirty once you've seen <laughs> pink insulation. Um, and so that's the thing. But like, yeah, John Deere Green is trademarked. Uh, Coca-Cola Red is trademarked. You know, there's a number of like, color trademarks that are very specific colors related to them. Um, you can trademark specific sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, the NBC, tra- the old NBC chime. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. Um, yeah, those kind of things sort of go into it. You can trademark, you know, sort of phrases and like even the way phrases are spoken. Um, you can trademark the appearance of things. So, you know, like uh, the appearance of a, of a bottle, for example, can potentially be trademarked. Now, a lot of this is we're bumping into trade dress as well. There's yeah. a line there. But the, um, Harder to get those rights, but they yeah. are out there. They're definitely out there in those things with trademarks. And again, the real keep in mind is that the trademark is to anything which identifies the source of goods. So if I look at this and say, this product is made by X company because of the fact that it's in this color or because it makes this sound or because it is this temperature. I mean, that's not something that's ever necessarily been dealt with as a trademark, but presumably could if that mm-hmm. uniquely identified the supplier. Well, the other interesting thing about a trademark is it basically lasts forever as long as it's properly enforced and taken care of. Whereas copyrights and patents by constitutional, you know, fiat have to end at some point. Yep, in and I, I, I assume it's still true. The the oldest trademark in the United States for at least the. Up until recently, was Samson Rope, mm-hmm. um, and you could actually go to the uh, which was registered 
shortly after the foundation of the United States, if I remember correctly. Um, and you could actually go to, you used to be able to go to the patent and trademark office and they had a big display that actually sort of showed off like the history of it because it was America's oldest trademark. And then uh, I, believe, I believe the world's oldest trademark is still the triangle for Bass Beer. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm not sure that's entirely true. I know there was a question for a while as to whether or not that trademark was actually going to go away, but I believe that's actually the world's oldest sort of registered trademark. Um, and it's because the, the British trademark system has existed longer than, than the other ones have. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's talk about a specific case. There's a company called Characters for Hire LLC. And they got sued in 2016 by Disney and a bunch of its subsidiaries, including... Is Marvel part of Disney? I think it is. Marvel Studios? It may be, yeah. Uh, I don't know and, exactly uh, how they arrange themselves anymore. And Lucasfilm also over a bunch of IP issues, copyright, of course, being one of them. Uh, we're going to talk about the copyright piece uh, in passing, but the more interesting part is, um, is why copyright is not good enough in this situation and why they also asserted uh, trademark rights. Yep. So what this company basically does is hire out models and actors to, you know, basically dress up in costume like famous fictional characters from Star Wars or uh, Disney princesses, things like that, Thor and Loki, and then show up at you know children's birthday parties or company events or things like that. And uh, they're basically uh, Elvis impersonators, but for fictional characters. Uh, so, you know, Snow White is a good example, Darth Vader. Uh, the thing is, uh, Characters for Hire never got a license to do any of this with nope. any of these characters from Disney. Or from anybody. Or from anybody, for that matter. Um so, as you can imagine, the Walt Disney Company was was not pleased with this, and so they told them to stop, which they didn't, and uh, ultimately filed copyright infringement and trademark infringement claims against characters for hire. Now, normally in a situation like this, I would look at it and say, as an attorney, okay, well, you, you, you done messed up, stop. You know? yeah. uh, that's not what characters for hire did. Um, Disney argued that the use of these characters is unlicensed, uh, the quality of the costumes is, is low, the performances are shoddy, uh, the company apparently has an F rating by the Better Business Bureau. Uh, so Disney asserted uh, tarnishment claims and dilution claims, and the company uh, fought back. Um, I, I think an important thing to mention here in, in conjunction, we talk about dilution and tarnishment. Yeah, so wh- why not just trademark infringement? What's the difference? Well, dilution and tarnishment are trademark claims, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. So we talked about the idea that you know a trademark is basically the, the identity fire of the seller. The, the idea is the confusion as yeah. to the association yeah. with the seller. With this, the question is, is, is anybody really confused? Nobody no, really nobody assumed is. this was actually Disney yeah. sending their professional actors. Yeah, no, nobody hiring characters for hire is going to think that this is an official Disney production of some kind. Yeah. It's clearly not. Yeah, and so we, we sort of bump into the idea that everybody knows it's not the supplier. And you can just clear it up by saying, we are not associated with Disney. Okay, yeah. well, no confusion now, yeah, right? Yeah, so we have no confusion. But what they're looking at is they're saying, yes, but what we still have is we could potentially provide this service and what you're providing is damaging to our image. Mm-hmm. So the idea is not only that people are potentially confused, but there's also a cause of action against or tarnishment in this case, which says the product you're providing is is so shoddy, mm-hmm. people are going to start thinking we provide shoddy work. Yeah. Even though they know it's not us, you consistently providing this low-quality service is going to lower the public perception of how good our brand is because yep. they keep seeing you know, your characters dressed up like, like like a homeless Snow White. Yeah, and that's a yeah, good way to describe it. Even though, even though technically, didn't she wear rags for a while? What's um, what is she homeless? She got kicked out of the Cinderella, castle. I guess, actually. But, um, but the uh, the thing that you sort of bump into is, and, and that's the idea with tarnishment. Dilution is sort of similar, but basically the idea that you're diluting the market for us because you're saying, hey, this other product yep. exists. Even though we know it's not you, you're still taking market from us that we could have. So now we're getting interesting already in trademarks of, 
this is not something that says there's any confusion here. Everybody mm-hmm. knows this company's not related, even though we just told you that the purpose of trademark was to make sure that you didn't get confused in that way. What you're now looking at is these companies saying, well, you're not confused, but you're really harming our image. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the unfair competition component of it. Why does anybody hire characters for hire to come to their parties? It's because they really like the quality of the service and the high-caliber actors and the performance, or is it because, you know, Tommy wants Darth Vader at his birthday party, and this company has a Darth Vader costume, yeah. and nobody cares who's under the mask. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're getting sales and business and making profit, not because anybody cares about their particular services, but because they're using uh, 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 you know, brands or properties that belong to somebody else, that the goodwill in those properties is what's driving sales. And one of the things to keep in mind is what sometimes referred to as trading off. Yeah. So the idea is that effectively they're trading off of the yeah. power the other companies have created in these trademarks to then market their own services. Not as necessarily a competing service, not even as a confusingly similar service, but they're using, they're trading off of the goodwill. And goodwill is this lovely sort of concept that pops into trademarks all the time, which is that people associate the trademark as having the, the having goodwill with it. It's warm fuzzies. It's warm and fuzzy. So Com- when companies I see, I like, I have warm fuzzies for. Yeah, when I see a trademark like this, and I know it's a company and a product I like. I, I want that product because I appreciate them. That's the concept of goodwill. Mm-hmm. And so when you get into the idea that you know you got these companies, they're trading off of it and saying, "I want you know I want Darth Vader because I like Darth Vader." You're kind of playing off the goodwill of somebody who made Darth Vader famous. And goodwill is a real asset. I mean, it's on your balance sheet. Companies have have uh, goodwill. They buy and sell it. And it's it's one of these things that you can't you can't just. Um, I just said you can buy and sell it. You, you can, but you still have to. Someone has to build it up over time, right? You don't just start yeah. a business and have instant goodwill. You invest time and money into consistently providing a high a high level of quality or whatever level of quality that you're, yeah. you're going for, and to marketing and and doing customer relationship work and really establishing this positive public perception amongst your target demographic of your goods and services. Yep. Someone someone else is trading off of that to sell their own their own things, yeah. which may not even compete with you. It, it cheapens your brand yeah. and just seems unfair. And a good example is sort of the idea behind it. You know, can I have somebody show up at a birthday party dressed as a superhero? Obviously I can, and there's yeah. no suit there whatsoever, unless it's a recognized superhero. I mean, if I send somebody in a cape, you know, that's got no color scheme, remotely associated with any known superhero, mm-hmm. are they a superhero? Yeah, they can be a superhero. They can specify these are my superpowers. This is what I do. But they're not any known superhero. So the idea is then why does it have to be Superman you know, or something along those yeah. lines? Well, because there's an association with that and that's what these companies are asserting. This is the assertion of, tarn- of tarnishment and delusion. So to, to diverge into copyright briefly, why, they asserted copyright claims but they must not have felt super confident about those alone because they asserted cla- trademark uh, claims as well. So let's talk about why, why copyright might not work. And I think one of the reasons is that the actors themselves... That, that this company hires are probably just your, your typical random aspiring you know LA performers uh, who don't look in any way like the characters that they're that they're yep. playing. In fact, on the article I read talking about this, I had a picture of like the Snow White who doesn't look anything like Snow White yeah. other than the costume. So th- the question is, what copyright rights in these movies would be violated? And and your temptation might be to say, well, public performance. You can't just reenact the movie, but the Copyright Act provides definitions for what it means to perform and to publicly perform an audiovisual work or a motion picture. And it's a pretty narrow definition. Um, it says that a performance... Um, you know, or, or, or well, start with public. Public means you have to perform or display at a place open to the public or at a place where a substantial number of persons outside your normal circle of family and friends is gathered. Well, by definition, at a private birthday party, it's not public. Yeah. It says so right in the law. 
So that doesn't get you there. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, the, the, the other thing with it, we talked about the idea that, that you know, and oftentimes costumes are also not copyrightable. Yeah. Now, that's there's some dispute about that because of the recent cases yeah, that have come out of the Supreme Court, so there's some question, you know, as to exactly what the, the elements of copyrightable, you know, pictures are there. But you've, you've really got this this sort of issue in copyright of what really is the copyright being infringed. And we got to remember, and again, we're going to jump back here into copyright. We've been there for the last six weeks. The copyright requires a relatively specific thing. It requires copying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, part of the question is, is, is there copying in here? So and is there any kind up, of, yeah. you know, is there any kind of copying in a way that's, that's a violation? And you get into the things with copyright, and I think this is one of the, the big ones, and it's one that I, I bump into a lot in conjunction with the copyright, which is, people play Snow White all the time. Every Halloween. Every Halloween, there are hundreds of Snow Whites. Um, you know, and so it's one of those things where it's, where, where's a copyright violation in conjunction? You can look at it and say, you know, those costumes are purchased. Bought a licensed costume. Yeah. And you're, not and, char- you're not making any money off of it. But, yeah, but, but, the, but the, the concept of making money is not part of a copyright yeah. violation. And the issue with it is, is also just the fact that it was a licensed costume doesn't necessarily prevent the copyright infringement. Because that's I could buy a licensed CD and still commit copyright yeah. infringement with it. So you, you kind of bump into that, that issue of it's the... Where really is the copyright suit here? Like, it's it's hard to find a copyright suit here where everything lines up with the facts. Well, and, and the definition of a performance is to show the images of the movie in any sequence or to make it sound audible. That's not happening here. Yep. It's just somebody wearing a costume that vaguely resembles one of the characters. And so they may never say anything from the movie at all. They, they don't. Yeah, there's no reason why they'd have to. And as Kirk said, costumes are costumes are traditionally not copyrightable. It's debatable to the extent that that's still true. We'll get some more law on that in the next couple of years, I think. Um, so, so what's the difference here between between Halloween and this? Is it just that some company has a business model based off of it, and that the only reason people are hiring them is is like we said before, not because the actors in the company are great, but because they're trading off the goodwill of, of yep. these costumes. And that that's seems the, to be it. Yeah, and that, that's where I think the trademark arguments uh, come in. People have an effect and a high regard for these characters and these properties um, as brands. And, you know, they, they just want Darth Vader at their party. Yeah, they don't want some guy that in black suit and a, and a yeah. mask. They want Darth Vader. So, so we've got these dilution and tarnishment um, um, issues. But there's, there's some other copyright problems, and this is where uh, characters for hire, where their defense comes in. They turn around and say, well, wait a minute, Disney. All of your princesses are based on you know, Germanic mythology and fairy tales, basically. Thor yes. and Loki are part of Norse mythology. You yeah. know, the little princess and all these other characters, it's Atan's Christian Andersen. It's been public domain for a century. Yeah. So, so wait a minute. Let's back up a second. How do you have copyright rights? In, in Snow White as a character. Yeah, because Snow has, basically all you did is you made a movie out of a book which was in the public domain. Yeah. Now, you may have you know some right in the specific movie. I think most people would acknowledge that. Yeah. But how can you have a copyright in the character because you didn't create the character? They made another live-action Little Mermaid movie called The Little Mermaid based on Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, it was uh, a couple of years ago, I think, maybe even last year. I mean, maybe it hasn't come out yet. I don't know. I'm not going to watch it, but um, <laughs> it's it's not it's not my uh, my uh, my cup of tea. Uh, but you know, you can do that. You know, the Little Mermaid is a, is a title. Uh, Disney didn't come up with it. it it's uh, you know, it's, it was Anderson's. Uh, the story itself is public domain, and anybody can can make that story now. Yeah, and that's and again, I think you know we've talked about the idea of what's public domain, the fan fiction. This is a lot of the stuff we've gotten into. We're now sort of trying to comment about the fact that you know we we said for a number of weeks. 
copyrights it poor fit here. Mm-hmm. And that that's, creates a lot of the problems because being a poor fit, it may or may not be an infringement. You know, when you come Well, that's to the, the question. So questions. characters for hire, are they, are they copying Disney's portrayal of these characters? Yep. Or are they copying the original characters themselves? Now, when you buy a costume and the character looks and has the colors and costuming, like, like Belle's yellow dress, for example, yeah. from Beauty and the Beast, okay, well, that, that's Disney's, right? They, they came up with that dress, not, you know, yeah. not, not anybody else. But you also have the issue here, and I mean, we said it early on, one of the assertions was these were shoddy costumes. Costumes. Yeah, yeah. So they're arguably not very well done adaptations to what it is. Are they alternative adaptations? Are they really different costumes? And if you're dressed up as Thor and Loki, I mean, what, how much copyright is there in Thor? I guess if you if you if you do the exact costuming that's in the Marvel movies, there's a, there's an argument there. But you can make yourself pretty identifiable as Thor and and not well, look you need like a big hammer. Yeah, yeah. You just need Mjolnir, <laughs> and, and you've got it. So, and the other issue is, you know, while the early Disney films were all you know very faithful adaptions of the source material, the newer ones haven't been. And and Frozen is is, is a, yep. a stark example of that, where uh, the character of Elsa. You know, is is only loosely inspired by the Snow Queen from Anderson's original yeah. work. So, and I don't even think Anna really even exists in the original. I've Snow never Queen. read it, so I don't. I don't know. But I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, right? And I very very much doubt there's a, a crazy guy with a, an ice sled talking to reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Sven is not a character in yeah. the original Snow Queen. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a or, safe uh, statement. Uh, who's the uh, Who's the, the the Snowman? Olaf. Olaf. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> confident there's no talking uh, Snowman. If there is, correct me. Well, actually, guys, uh, let us know. <laughs> but I, I think I think the point stands that that Elsa is is. Concerned Conceptually and and substantively, a different character from the original. So you know, I think Disney has a better argument with those that no, 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 no. This the, you're, you're Elsa. You're not Hans Christian Andersen, Snow Queen. Yeah. You are Elsa, and Elsa is you know an inspired by, yep. but it's still very much our own original creation. Although I think definitely, and I think this is also where you get into some of these really interesting issues of copyright. You know, go look at your Halloween costumes that are out there. You're going to find officially licensed Elsa costumes. Mm-hmm. You're also going to find. Snow Queen costumes, many of which look nothing like Elsa's yeah. costume. Yeah, you know, and and that's the idea. You know, hey, you want to be an ice queen? You want to see be sort of be this archetype? There's lots of different ways to portray this. And there's cheaper. nothing that can stop. It. And they're usually because cheaper. there's no licensing fee to pay. Yeah. Um, and and you know honestly they're probably also trading off the popularity of the concept right now. There's a whole yep. lot of of you know direct to, to DVD movies that come out on the heels of any popular film that just retell the same basic story. I mean there's Asylum Studios as an entire movie studio whose sole purpose is to make you know uh, there, there's Atlantic Rim instead of Pacific Rim yeah. and stuff like that. So you know these, these companies do that and that's fine. You can do that. You can retell the same idea in a different way and you can even trade off the popularity of the idea. You know yeah. the popularity of the Snow Queen story as long as you're not using anybody else's IP. Yeah, and that's and these companies, I think the companies that do this very purposefully stay far away from the IP so they don't have a case, but also because that's part of the business model. People want to see the same story told in a completely different way. So we've talked a lot about the copyright ability of these characters, but what about the trademark ability? What trademark rights would there be in, say, an Elsa? And it boils down to what goods and services have you sold under the brand name the character of Elsa? That's a tough question. That's a tough question, I think that's where we really get into all of these, quite frankly, is in in the copyright issue, we had a problem of determining what the copyright was, what the cause of action was under the copyright. In the trademark issue, we have a question of, is this a trademark? Yeah, has it been used as a trademark? Because we seem to have the, the the we seem to have all of the factors of trademark infringement, but we have the question: the of, Is there a trademark? <laughs> you know, it's the same kind of thing as it's like we have all the factors for there being murder, murder, but no body. Yeah. Um, and so you you kind of bump into the idea of you know has there been something that's been done here when we can't necessarily prove it, and I think that's where this case is probably going. I think this case is still pending. 
Yeah, I think they just had oral argument on motions for summary judgment a couple weeks ago. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're looking at it as, you know, this this case is still pending um, as to what it is, and we're going to see where this goes. And I think yeah. part of the question is, is exactly what are the trademark rights here? This is one where very well they could say there's trademarks in certain elements, certain not elements. You know, you could very well see this getting split all over the place mm-hmm. as to what it would be. You could also see it seeing coming down very one-sided, um, you know, depending on exactly what this is. So. It's, it's hard to imagine the court's not going to uphold these rights in a, in a competitive commercial environment like this. Yes. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're going to have to go back and rely on the law. And and trade trademark law can be murky in these areas. Yep. And that's one of the things we just said. So we talked about, or we started this whole thing, good facts, good law. Mm-hmm. We have here the question of we may have some bad facts in conjunction with this. It reminds me of the Sabak thing we talked about a couple episodes ago where same kind of thing. Disney's asserting copy or trademark rights in this name because the name the name itself is, is almost definitely not copyrightable. Yeah. Um, so they're asserting trademark rights because it's been part of this fictional universe, but they haven't sold any goods under that brand name. It's yeah. more been a part of the goods they have sold under the Star Wars brand. Yeah. Name. So how is it associated as a seller? Because really, what the seller is is Star Wars or is yeah. Disney. Those are. I mean, those are clearly trademarks. Star Wars is clearly yeah. trademarked. Disney's clearly trademarked. I think the interest at stake here is fundamentally a trademark interest. Yeah. But this is like I said: is this bad facts? Is this a situation where the nature of how it's been used doesn't necessarily give rise? to a trademark right in the traditional sense, and then can the court find a way to make it fit? Yeah, and and a lot of the things you know, have a potential worry with this is when a district court gets a hold of this, what are they going to say the law is? Yeah. Because what they're going to be interpreting is what is the law. We know what the facts are. Mm-hmm. They're going to be interpreting is what is the law, and when they start interpreting what is the law, could we get bad law being written out of bad facts? You know, where we look at it and say, okay, it's fine in this case, the outcome seems to be right, but the general principle by which this was found, and again, whenever a court finds anything, that this is what the law says, because of the, the nature of the way the American legal system works, that is the interpretation of the law. Now, that can be overturned by an appeal court. That's important to keep in mind. It can also be disagreed by a court which is not related to the same one. So, for yep. example, a court in California and a court in Missouri can disagree um, because they're not bound by each other's precedent because and they're different courts. This is where it's important which court you pick. I mean, in a case like this, it involves sort of nuanced issues of IP law. You preferably want to be in front of a set of judges who are used to dealing with it. So you probably want to be in either a California or a New York for a case like this. No offense intended to, to Utah, but I doubt there's a lot of trademark infringement lawsuits filed in, in the district of Utah. Yeah. You know, and, and and the real thing about it is more that you want a judge that sort of has a better grasp of the lo- of the law in has this. dealt with this kind of case yeah. before and kind of knows what the contours of the law are. It's just it'll make things go faster. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, we we see that around here too, where you know St. Louis gets plenty of IP cases filed, but when you get into the more rural districts around the Midwest, uh, you know, it's it's often new to the judges. Yeah, and the and the idea behind this is so also a judge looking at it isn't really taking this case in isolation. Yeah. Because the concern you always have is that they say, this case leads me to go this way, but you look at it and say, but this case has a weird set of facts, and the way you're interpreting the law for this weird set of facts actually causes a much more common set of facts to really go the way the opposite of what everybody expected. And I think this particular case is in uh, the Southern District of New York, which is, you know, the, the Cadillac of <laughs> of judicial districts on the East Coast. So it'll, it'll be decided by a, a competent judge. And it'll go to the Second Circuit, if not, which also sees a lot of trademark type cases. Yep. So this one's in good hands. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. Well, let's move on to another a trademark case that uh, that somebody had asked us to talk about. Who remembers Grumpy Cat? Grumpy Cat. So back in 2012, 
a guy photographed, uh, I think it was, it was either his cat or his sister's cat. Uh, the cat's name is Tartar Sauce, which is a, g- a great name for a cat. That's yeah, a great name for a cat. And uh, this cat has a perpetual scowl, and uh, the guy put the photographs out on social media, and it became an instant uh, internet meme. Uh, the cat's been on morning TV shows and newspapers, and, and her owners decided to monetize. Uh, they formed a company, Grumpy Cat Limited, and they registered the word mark Grumpy Cat as a trademark. And in fact, I, I checked on this this morning. They actually have five different Grumpy Cat trademark registrations on everything from pet food to books, wrapping paper, clothes, toys, uh, various tchotchkes. And the one we're going to talk about today is coffee and tea. <laughs> That yeah. sound weird. So they launched a licensing program to allow people to use both the Grumpy Cat image and mark on various products. And one of the licensees was a company called Grenade Beverages. And uh, Grenade had, according to the court case at least, a, a very limited license to use the Grumpy Cat trademark on one specific line of coffee products. And as I understand it, and I haven't read all the pleadings, so I could have some of the facts wrong. So that's the case. Again, well, actually, guys, please correct me. But I believe that they asked to expand to other coffee lines. The Grumpy Cat licensor said no. And they launched those lines anyway. I think I think they looked at the contract and said, we have the right to do that. At least that's what yeah. I'm assuming. Uh, you know, using Grumpy Cat, and they advertised it over social media. And I think they also registered the GrumpyCat.com domain name, which, yeah. which that was that was a mistake. Well, so, it's also interesting that they were able to register it and that the owners <laughs> in the course of setting well, up all this stuff had thought to do that. Have it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the Grumpy Cat people sued for copyright and trademark infringement, breach of licenses, cyber squatting, uh, failure to pay royalties, and so forth. Uh, uh, Grenade Counter claimed, and they said that Grumpy Cat actually breached the license first by refusing to approve the new line of coffee. So, this is one important point. You can't actually sue for breach of contract if you are yourself in breach first. Yes. And it's, it's the sort of important component of it is is basically you can't say that somebody else is obligated to follow a contract that you, that you yourself, yourself are refusing to follow. Yeah, that's sort of uh, built into the law in a number of different areas. There's also an equitable doctrine. This may be related to it. Unclean hands. You can't yep. come to the courts having done wrong yourself and then, uh, and then insist that the court make somebody else uh, stop behaving badly. Yep. So the judge said no. Uh, you know they exercised their discretion under the contract in denying it. The case went to a jury, and uh, the Grumpy Cat people won damages. And there was two different awards. There was four hundred and eighty thousand dollars in what's called statutory damages uh, on the trademark claim, and another two hundred and thirty thousand dollars on the copyright claim. And this is where there's an interesting difference between copyright and trademark. So the copyright claims were mainly for use of the Grumpy Cat image. The trademark claims were for selling coffee under the Grumpy Cat brand without authorization. And so you have your choice. You can sue them for both. You can sue them uh, for for one or the other. And you can infringe both in one product. And what's interesting here is that the measure of the statutory damages is different as between trademark and copyright. Yep. The other thing to keep in mind is that the, well, we're talking about the, the image being a copyright claim. The image could also be a trademark claim. Yeah, you can trademark the image too. Yeah, the, tra- the image itself could have been a trademark, and um, that wasn't brought here. I don't think as the. I don't think it was part of the case, it, but you know that is a possibility. When I looked up their marks, and they had word marks and all yeah. the ones I saw. So, well, anyway, so what's interesting is that the Copyright Act sets the statutory damages, and we should explain what statutory damages are. Normally, in lawsuits, you're entitled to be made whole. We say, you know, so, you know someone breaches a contract, and they're going to, you know, paint my house for a thousand dollars. They don't get it done. I have to pay somebody uh, twelve hundred dollars to do it. I can sue the first person for the extra two. I had to pay to hire somebody else, or yep. if they if they do it and I pay them and they screw it up and I got to have it redone, I can sue for my cost. I have to I have yep. to get the benefit of my bargain. A lot right? of times, the way it, it ends up is that they try to put you back at the position you should have been if everything yeah. would have worked yeah, out. Had it been performed correctly, or in rescission, had it not been performed, performed at, at all. all. Yep. 
Uh, well, the problem with copyright suits is it's often hard to figure out what the actual damages are, sometimes because there are no real you know, quantifiable damages. So what the Copyright Act says is that under certain circumstances, you're just entitled to some amount of money between X and Y by law, regardless of what your actual damages are. Yep. And I think X is seven fifty. Is that the minimum now? Uh, I can't remember. It's anymore. like seven fifty up to thirty thousand dollars per think, infringement. Yeah. It can go down as low as I think two hundred or two fifty if it's innocent infringement, and as much as one fifty for willful. I think. Yeah, it's troubling. So yeah, it's 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 high if, uh, if it's willful. Uh, but trademark is different. Trademark does have statutory damages uh, in dollar amounts for you know things like counterfeit goods, and I think cyber squatting has it too. But otherwise, the the statutory damages awardable in trademarks are are not defined in dollar amounts so much as the harm cause, and they tell you how to measure it. One is, what are the defendant's profits? they got to turn it over to you. Yep. Another is, uh, how much damages have you sustained as the person whose mark has been infringed? I don't know how you quantify that, though. Well, some of that I think you can... You, the, the questions in a lot of these things when you get into these idea of statutory damages is they're trying to look for a number that's relatively easy to calculate. Mm-hmm. So when you're getting into something, and again, we, we talked about this earlier in some of the prior cases, you know, things like tarnishment. How do we look at it and say, well, what how kind much of are you damage tarnished? did you do to my yeah. brand and something like that? Well, one easy way to look at it is to say, well, how much did you make from it? Yeah, and if the answer to that is, you lost this. You're not going to be able to go out there and and, and say, Say, here's how many people didn't hire us or, or didn't go see our movies because characters for hire did this. Or how, here's how many people yes. you know uh, didn't go buy you know our licensed Grumpy Cat products because of your unlicensed products. That, that data is just not going to yeah, be. Yeah, and there. that's and that's where you go after the defendant. You basically look at it and say, hey, the defendant. I can say how much Grumpy Cat yeah, cost I know how much you sold. made. <laughs> so I can, I can look at the other side of it. I think the reason the damage is sustained by the plaintiff and where you can really see it is you do have some cases where somebody could go out and actually do a trademark tarnishment and purposely not make anything. Yeah. And that shouldn't make them judgment-proof. Yeah, just to be malicious. Yeah. So you look at it and say, hey, if you went out and you purposely gave away the product mm-hmm. so that you don't have any profits, but obviously you're damaging them, well, we can look to them and say, well, what did they lose as profits? And even some of that damage is sustained. They can even look at it and say they could have sold the product for this. You know, If you sold 50 bags of coffee, they could have sold 50 bags of coffee at their pricing. Mm-hmm. So that's how much they lost. You can also get what's called treble damages sometimes. And treble is... Legal for triple. Triple. Uh, why do we do that? It's, I think it is technically it is accurate somewhere. Maybe we saw that once. English. We saw the word behoof show up in an assignment document once, where somebody <laughs> meant to write behalf, and we were like, "Well, that's an obvious typo. How come the the um, you know the the word check didn't catch that when they sent it over?" We looked it up. Behoof means the same thing as behalf. Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting. It actually is technically correct word. Yeah, a, a typo that was accurate. Well, so this all raises another question we haven't really talked about, which kind of harkens back to the monkey case, and that's rights of publicity. Yep, and uh, particularly with Grumpy Cat. You know, the federal court held in the, in the last case we talked about that animals can't own copyrights, but could an animal have a right of publicity? Could Grumpy Cat, for example, have a right of publicity because it's his commercial likeness that everybody is, yeah. is willing to pay for? Yeah, I mean, if, if this is, you know, you know, we're talking about you know, somebody perpetually grumpy. I mean, there's plenty of actors we can refer to as always looking perpetually grumpy. Harrison Ford. <laughs> no offense, others. Harrison, if you're listening. Uh, but the, uh, the thing that I think you can, you can bump into is it's why don't you just handle some right of publicity? Obviously, Harrison Ford can say you can't use my image yeah. tomorrow. I get coffee unless I approve of it. That's a right of, clear right of publicity yeah. claim. So, and I think part of this is just logistical. If if the right, it's said to think of who has the right. If the right belongs to the animal, then the animal has the exclusive right to license it out. But the animal doesn't have capacity to license anything. Yeah. So somebody has to exercise that right on behalf of the of the animal. And so then you say, okay. 
So someone, so, so say the animal um, is basically the beneficiary of a trust, yep. and you have, you know, the owner is a trustee who is managing the the assets of the animal. Um, well, you know, and this happens in real life. People die and set up a trust to take care of their animals. This can be done. It's not it's not crazy talk. Uh, but then when the money comes in, what do you what do you do with it? Is it just yeah. to take care of the animal? I mean, how much does it cost to take care of a cat? Yeah, and, and what do you do with all the other revenue? All the other revenue and stuff like that. And then again, you, so and I think the answer to it is is basically they've kind of come in and said, in many respects, animals don't have a right of publicity. Yeah, yeah. Just to simplify this as to what it is, but it's getting more complicated. Um, you know, you talk about it, and I, I remember hearing about this stuff with it, is that the fact that there's a number of, like, creations now that are essentially pure CGI. Yeah, Japan especially. Um, that, you know, are literally marketed images, yeah. you know, to other companies. They're, they're spokespeople. That That's what Max Hedrum was, was represented as. It wasn't really, it was just an actor. But, yeah. But uh, a purely fictional, computer-created character that a team of programmers animates and hires out to sponsor things. And I think for a while, in like 2010, Japan actually had like a pop music star that nobody yeah, was realized a huge was CGI, one that was, yeah, CGI. for a while. So it's the exact same kind of issue. You know, this is not this is not a, a thing that has you know a right of publicity or rights, but conceptually, that's really what we're licensing out yeah. is is the right to profit by association or sponsorship from this animal or or this this CGI yeah. character. And that's where I think we kind of bump rights of publicity is bumping up against trademark now. And that's where you think you see this is a lot of this is trademark claims. Is when you look at it, and you say, well, what really is the right of publicity? It's saying I have a right to market myself via my image, via my identity. You can't use that to market me as associated with something because that's that's solution, that's tarnishment of me. I'm not actually associated with your product. I don't want to be associated with your product because yeah. I don't like it. It's and not even, you, you see where it, it comes in. Yeah, and it's, it's broader than even just your actual like uh, image. It's, it's your likeness and your personality. There was the, the Vanna White robot case. You remember yeah, that one? Yeah, we mentioned that one. Yeah, yeah, where someone had a, a Android Vanna White uh, in a, like a car advertisement. Yep. And Vanna White sued and said, you've got a person standing in front of a, a grid full of letters turning them in a blonde wig. Yeah. Who else do you think it is? You know? Yeah. So you know you're you're trading off my likeness, and I'm not sponsoring your car dealership. You're trading off my goodwill. And again, yeah. it's, we talked about that. I mean, early on, I said the concept of trading off. You know, that's a, a key trademark thing. You kind of look at it and say, right of publicity, in some sense, is an argument for a specialized trademark. It really is. Very similar. And, and where you get into this, and I think this is the thing with it, is to keep in mind that trademark is not a constitutionally protected IP right. This comes out of our unfair competition. Now, right so of publicity, we have an equity equitable remedy. Yeah, yeah for sure. And rights of publicity are are similar in that it's not. It's not an express constitutional right, but the concept behind it, I think, is ultimately rooted in privacy law, which does have at least some sort of seeds in the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment in particular. Yep. Now, I, I think it's a stretch to say you have a constitutional right of publicity, um, although you clearly have a constitutional right to privacy. We have a long series of cases uh, uh, standing for that proposition, at least in certain contexts. But to stretch that to a constitutional right of publicity, I think, is a stretch. And these rights usually arise either at common law by state or under statutory law by state in, in some circumstances. So I think there's a question. You know, we're, 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 we're nationalizing more and more of these properties. We recently got a national trade secrets law, yep. also historically handled by the states. Is a national right of publicity law Law to kind of harmonize all these different state regimes on the horizon at some point. I mean, I think the answer is yes, it's on the horizon. The question it seems is seems inevitable, have, right? You know, well, and the comment I always have with it is everything's on the horizon. Do you ever reach the horizon? Yeah. Um, well, and, and, well and that, yeah, that's exactly the question is how close is that horizon? And I think, yeah. you know, I, I've often wondered if, if some of the, the problems we see with how people are, are treated on the internet or mistreated on the internet could be solved through a, a national right of publicity and, and, you know, making clear everybody's got that and having almost like a 
DMCA takedown type procedure to deal with, you know, unlawfully posting photos of yourself that are that are you know meant to embarrass you or or uh, you know people tagging you and things stuff like that. Yep. Well, and I mean we have so you know when this when this episode airs we will have the European you know data yeah, privacy yep. uh, will be in effect. And so one of the, the questions is, you know, is that an attempt to do that? And I think there's a lot of concern as to, is that law going to work at all? Is it even implementable? Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, do we see that, that, is that a first attempt to try to go to that type of thing? Well, Europe's generally says, hey, been ahead of, ahead of us on this, at least. Uh, Germany, in particular, has had very aggressive privacy laws for a long time. I won't even try to pronounce their privacy act, because <laughs> yeah. their, their laws are, are, are lengthy. Um, uh, a postscript on the, on the copyright issues we talked about, uh, I think we said a couple episodes ago, we talked about whether we thought copyright terms would be extended, and we both thought, no, it's probably not no, going to happen No, it's probably not going to happen again. A week later, the Classics Act. <laughs> oh yeah, comes out. Which, to be fair, I don't, I don't conceive of that as really an extension. It's more of saying, you know, those pre nineteen seventy two recordings that we excluded from the nineteen seventy six Copyright Act. Yeah, we probably shouldn't have. <laughs> the thing that I think is the problematic with this is that it's basically, you know, is it copyright extension? No, you know, yes, you can look at it and say it would have been extended on these, except they were actually they were excluded. Yeah. The problem with it is, is you kind of look at it and go, yes, but they were presumably excluded for a reason. Well, it, it, you know, so yes, it is. Extension. Well, it's the same problem we just talked about. You have all these this mishmash of, of antiquated state copyright laws that aren't being updated, aren't being actively uh, monitored, regulated, or anything. And and you have a, a need for national harmony so that these old recordings can be used on the internet and, and in modern mass media. And so I think there's a clear policy reason for it. I, I'm not critical of the extension so much as what do you do with orphan works or works where you you can't find an author like. Yeah. It seems there ought to be some sort of registry or something to say, you know, okay, well, I own this work and I want to take advantage of this term, so I'm going to file something with yep. the Copyright Office to do that. It's questionable whether the Copyright Office is well enough funded to handle that and can implement yep. it. I mean, they, they just finally got online DMCA uh, <laughs> takedown forms. Yeah, we've been using the interim form since 1999. Yeah. It's been 15 years. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a little more harsh to it. I really have a problem with the copyright extensions and and the fact that they just continually keep extending copyrights, even to the extent this is a limited one. And we yeah. look at it and say, yes, this you know these were things that were excluded that you know or could have arguably been included in the original one. And to be we, clear, this is not an extension beyond the current term yes. that's by default. It's things that were excluded from the latest extension, extension are now going to be included, included in into it. it. Yeah. And, and for me, sort of purpose, you know, when I talk about copyright, is it's. I think it, we're starting to see it. I think we're starting to see it as some of the recent copyright decisions. We have created a monster when it comes to copyright that we don't fully understand. I mean, this is very much a Frankenstein type of thing. We, we really don't kind of understand exactly what we've created as a monster. It could be kind and gentle. It might not be. It's like we started at one of those snowballs rolling down an alpine hill. It's going to nail somebody when it gets to the bottom, but we don't know who the victims are yeah, going to be Yeah, we don't know who the victims are going to be But it's going to get there eventually, and we've we've put off and put off and put off the, the day of reckoning for when these, these Americana copyrights expire and what it's going to do, and we're going to have to face yeah. it sooner or later. And, and I think, unfortunately, the reason why we keep doing it is fear. We keep looking at it and saying somehow we're going to lose something when yeah. these things become public domain. And in my in my mind, that's a yes. We're going to lose something when these become public domain. We're also presumably going to gain something when they do. Yeah. And you can't. We can't just be looking at one side of it. We need to be looking at this and saying what these things are. And again, yeah, it's it's bad for the artists who are stuck in this scenario that says you didn't get extended. It's also bad for the future artists that you do get extended. Yep. You know, we can't. One of you, t- one of the two of them, is in trouble. And I think it's easy to look at one group and say, "Well, this group is hurt, and that group's undefined." 
Yeah, that's not the way we should be writing a law. I feel like we're at the rip off the band aid stage. Like, let's just get it over with. Yeah, <laughs> and we, we deal with the pain and uncertainty, with. Uh, and, and then let the the legal dust settle. And then, you know, basically, once Mickey Mouse is figured out, that's what's going to apply to everything else. And then we'll kind of understand what's going to happen. And one argument I think as well when we talk about it is part of the reason for extending this and to sort of you know back off on my prior comment a little bit. <laughs> one of the, the arguments for why you extend this is because that way it does all come off at once. So we sort it out. We don't sort it out with these particular yeah, works it's not beforehand. All done yeah. We, we we do it, and so there is an argument for that, and I see the argument for that. Again, my my worry with it is is it's, I think it's it's an it's an easy thing to sort of look at and say you know, but yeah, this you know it would be so unfair to this group of people, and the other group is just so undefined. We're not going to worry about it, and we need to stop doing that. We need to basically well, look at it and say, look, we're done. This is copyright term. I also this is just my opinion. Uh, I, I there, to me, there's some hyperbole on the on the side of, of, of what I perceive as my side. My side is copyright needs to end at some point, yep. and we're at that point. But you know, the people I, I find myself agreeing with, uh, you know, kind of complain. We can't we can't make anything new. We can't do anything until we can use these properties, which is, to me is just sort of a, a contradiction. What you can't yeah, create anything new. Unless you can use somebody else's yeah. IP, like no, no, we've no. created a hundred years of yeah. you know new stuff, which is all the copyright stuff. I, I think we're the better about. argument is is just that you, you've you've had your time to make your money off this stuff. The Constitution requires this, and it, it just needs to end. And and I don't think it has to be completely destructive of an industry. You know, Mickey Mouse's trademarks are still going to be there. Yeah, you know, so we can all sell DVDs of Steamboat. And that's Willie. an important okay. thing I think we get into. You know, in conjunction with it, is to keep in mind that the one thing we have said is indefinite is trademark. Yeah, and th- there's a value to that, and the value of having trademark be indefinite is trademark is saying this person created a value there is still that value there so long as that's still identified with the person yeah mm-hmm. they can still potentially hold that value but it's going to be limited because the, everything else is going to run out yep. it's, it's all associated with that value so I think there's a good value to just say that's what it is Let's move on to some uh, some questions. We've got one from uh, Ed from Twitter. This is, this is also Ed from Esco, but he asked this one on Twitter. He corrected us. We have a Will actually guy. Thank you, Ed. Uh, he Finally. says, regarding Watson, the IBM marketing department calls all of IBM's AI work Watson. It's just a brand name and not a single all-powerful object. Oh, wait, it's a brand name. That's, that's trademark. Ed, that's what Watson wants you to think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, I mean, it's, so we talk about it as being a trademark. Um, yeah, I mean, is this the first step to our robot overlords? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it real? That you know, it's just a brand name, or is he really in everything? Uh, next one from Facebook from Ken. He's, this actually came up a while ago, and I forgot to ask it. A uh, query that occurred to me is verbing protected speech, e.g., go Google that. He photoshopped the picture, uh, intentionally lowercase. I've heard it is protected, but I have no idea why or were my sources wrong. I, I think the. I mean, this is a, this is a problem. This is genericide, which we, yep. we could have gotten into today, but didn't. This is where you start to use a trademark as the generic for something. So, if you ever wondered why yep. it's a lift in England and an elevator here, we had the Otis Elevator Company. An elevator became the generic word for the thing that lifts you up. Yep. Whereas opposed to the lift, which is what it yep. does. Yeah. Um, so when something's generic, it cannot be a trademark, and things that that uh, that begin to be synonymous with a generic name uh, can no longer be used. So aspirin, bear used to yep. own. They don't have that anymore. So here's the thing: when someone says Go Google that. Nobody means go Alta Vista that. They don't, yeah. mean, they don't mean go check Yahoo. They mean go to Google and look it up because I want Google search results. Yeah. Now, now Photoshop Photoshop's is a little bit more interesting. Yeah. And I'm actually just going to pick on it. It's, you know, it's for those of you who don't know, I listen to country music. Big hit on the radio right now from Kenny Chesney. You know, 1-800-GET-TO-KNOW-ME. Was she Photoshopped or were her eyes really that lonely? Yeah. What's the use of Photoshop? Do people use Photoshop on billboard images? 
Mm-hmm. Is that still what somebody would use in conjunction with this, or is that a thing to say, hey, this was made, you know, it's been artificially computer modified from yeah. a photograph? I think when people say Photoshop, I, I think there's a lot of people who don't realize that Photoshop is an actual product. Yeah. Whereas no, there's nobody who's not aware that Google is. Yeah. Google. <laughs> it's hard to avoid so that, yes. I think that one's different. I mean, when, when I use when I use it myself or hear it used, I, I sort of assume we're probably going to use Photoshop TM because that's the best one, you know, and that's yeah. the one everybody has. But there's Adobe Illustrator. There's other products out there that you can use to quote-unquote Photoshop things. Yeah. Um, but it's not really Photoshopping because you're not using Photoshop. So, yeah, I, I, th- I mean, there is a risk there of, of genericide, I think. Um, I'm not sure why Photoshop hasn't called us yet to talk about that. They should have. Get on it, Photoshop. Um, um, but yeah, I think the, the issue you got into the the things with these is it's the other piece of this is it's not just referring to Photoshop as a product. It's it's using this verbing form, yeah. which is a relatively recent thing. And the argument is is that they are intending you to do that thing on that product because that yeah. product does this thing. But there, there's been other you know Xerox that for me. There's been other companies yeah. who fought campaigns to stop their trademarks from becoming genericized that way. Xerox was one. Uh, Rollerblade did, Kleenex did, Band-Aid yep. did. There's, there's plenty of examples of these. So Photoshop's probably going out, I would assume, going out and when they find these uses, putting a stop to them so it doesn't happen in popular, you know, in, in media, in news reporting. Yep. Um, I'm sure they're, they're, they're pursuing people where that happens. It's just in, in colloquial vernacular use. You know they're not, they're not going to be aware of it. How are they going to find out? Listen to this yeah. podcast and come yell at us. Yeah, you know? and we've been clear anyway, so we're <laughs> covered. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a good question, uh, Ken, and um, that that is a risk. And I think I. I wouldn't be so worried about it if I was Google, but for yeah. Photoshop, I would. The other question I think you bump into, quite frankly, is it's the verbing and sort of the nature of this creation of new words. Sometimes these words end up in the dictionary. They do. And, you know, does that become generic when all of a sudden Webster says, no, you're really a word instead of a trademark? Yeah. What does that mean? All right. Well, that's it for today. Um, if you have questions, comments, or topic ideas, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us... Uh, on our Facebook page, search for a Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. You will find us there. Kirk, you want to do your uh, your? We'll, we'll do a Deadpool review really quickly. I'll do a ten second Deadpool two review. My first take of it is: if you like the first one, you're probably going to like the second one. Okay, uh, they're very similar, sort of. I think in the style is what it is. My one complaint about the second one, to summarize it, is the second one has too much plot, um, which is a really your... odd statement. I know it coming to it. The second one has a, a very good plot. It actually has a pretty decent movie plot as to what it is, and kind of a, a, a cool storyline associated with it as to what's going with it. Some actual moral questions. Stuff that like that. sounds like it would get in the way of all the profanity and toilet it humor. It kind of does. <laughs> that's the thing with it. The, the, so that's the one thing I would say about it is I think that the, the first one, my take of it is the first one is better because I think the first one is... It, for lack of a better term, a purer form of what I would expect it to be. Now, it's really odd since there's only two examples of it. But the the thing with that, the other thing about it is, I think with the with the second one is, there are some sections in the second one, at least in my mind, that just worked. They're they're <laughs> hilarious, and you're just sitting here going, they're not going to do that. Oh, they just did. Oh, there's no way they're going to. No, they just did, and you know that kind of thing, and that's great. Then there's some sections where they try to do that and it doesn't work in yeah. my mind, and I think that that's unfortunate, sort of as to what it was. Overall, my basic take as to what it is. If you like the first one, see the second one. I think it was a great movie. Um, I had never heard of Deadpool before the first movie. I, I didn't either. I knew the name, but I didn't know you know anything about him. I would totally go see Deadpool three. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's about two, the best so. praise you can get. So, uh, yeah. out of five stars, how many? 
I hate using five star symbols because I don't think there's enough stars. You can, you can um, do fractional yeah, stars. Yeah, yeah, I do fractional stars. If I sort of take fractional stars, and change, I'd probably say somewhere between like three and three quarters and four. It's pretty solid. Um, it's it's a very solid movie. You know, it's very enjoyable as to what it is. You know, saying I gave the original probably like four and three quarters, maybe yeah. even approaching five. Um, so again, I don't think it's as good as the first one. I do like it. Um, quite frankly, I think Domino steals the show in some <laughs> respects. She is hilarious at certain points in conjunction. Is that the with character it. that's just lucky. The character yeah. is just lucky, and it's she plays lucky so well. That's, that's awesome. A, you got to give some praise to that actress for just being utterly confident that things will turn out right, and that's what she portrays across the screen is just, this is going to turn out right because I'm lucky. So was Deadpool right? Was it not cinematic? <laughs> it's, it is incredibly cinematic <laughs> at certain points, and it's it's overly cinematic <laughs> at certain points on purpose, and that's part of the fun of it. All right. Okay, uh, well, wrapping it up, you can subscribe to our podcast, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a review. We really appreciate those. It helps other people find us with the search engine optimization and all that kind of stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk on Twitter at KirkDMN. Next time, we're going to do something very similar to what we did today, except with patents. We're going to find some weird and interesting patents, oddities in the history of the patent office, including a fire that destroyed a bunch of patents that had to be renumbered. Uh, and we're going to talk about a guy that attempted to patent godly powers. <laughs> yep. He claimed to be... Um, We'll get into it next week. He, he claimed to be some sort of divine being. It was great in godly powers. He like sued David Copperfield and a bunch of other people. So that's a it's a case that I'm going to have a case of the giggles trying to get through because the stuff he claimed was just just hilarious. So uh, so that's it. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 